to sing and came across one uh, that was written by Graham Kendrick and it is based on Psalm 25 and so that got my head rolling and thinking about Psalm 25. So um, as I thought about what God would might uh, want to say to you all, Psalm 25 seemed to be appropriate. So let us attend to God's word. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you I trust, O my God. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame, but they will be put to shame who are treacherous without excuse. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great love and mercy, for they are from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. All the ways of the Lord are loving and faithful for those who keep the demands of his covenant. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. Who then is the man that fears the Lord? He will instruct him in the way chosen for him. He will spend his days in prosperity, and his descendants will inherit his land. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Turn and be gracious to me, for I am lonely, lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have multiplied. Free me from my anguish. Look upon my affliction and my distress and take away all my sins. See how my enemies have increased and how fiercely they hate me. Guard my life and rescue me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness protect me because my hope is in you. Redeem Israel, O God, from all their troubles. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these words, knowing that all Scripture is God-breathed, and therefore is intended to instruct us, to correct us, to train us for righteousness, all of these things, and more. We thank you that you have given us this song from the life of David, not just that we might know about David, but that we might know about Christ, that we might know about ourselves when we are in situations similar to David's. And so open our eyes by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. Open our hearts that we might behold that which you have in store for us in your word this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther another one of my spiritual heroes, was going through a very difficult time. And he was prone to depression, and so he was depressed. 
and he moped about the house for days upon end, and his wife, Katrina, was getting a little weary of Martin at this point in time. So one day, Katie decided to wear black. She walked into the house. Martin finally looked up and observed that she was wearing black, and he commented, oh, sorry, she commented, someone died. Martin asked, who? Her reply was, it seems God has. She wanted Martin to recognize that he was acting in his depression as if God had died and had forsaken him. Instead of looking to him in the midst of his afflictions, in the midst of his troubles, and finding hope despite the circumstances that he experienced. That's what this psalm is about. Right here. God humbles us in order to lead and guide us through affliction. But the first part is let's talk a bit about what the afflictions reveal. And afflictions reveal our guilt and our fears. This psalm by David starts with David's commitment to, first of all, lift up his soul to the Lord. This is found as well at the end of the psalm, so it's kind of the bookends of the psalm, are David's hope and trust in the Lord. He lifts up his life or soul to God. Because he does not want the afflictions to have the final say on who he is and what he does. As I think about this, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. I think of Luther at the Diet of Worms, particularly as portrayed in the recent, well, not so recent movie now. I guess it's over a decade. But nonetheless, he's agonizing because he has one night. He has to return back before the Pope. Sorry, not the Pope, the Emperor. He has one more night before he returns before the Emperor and account for himself and whether he will recant that which he has written. And so he merely lays upon the floor and says over and over again the words that Staupitz, his confessor, had told him to say, I am yours, Lord. Save me. That is essentially what David is saying here. I belong to you. Save me. Deliver me. It is in keeping with what we find. It anticipates what we find in Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So he's not just saying, save me, but he's saying, I give myself to you. Save me. Have mercy on me. And when we're going through trials, we need to remember, like David did, that we are in safekeeping in the midst of our afflictions precisely because God is trustworthy. We cannot, the word escaped me, measure the trustworthiness of God based on our present circumstances. Okay? That is one of the dangers that we as Christians often experience. Uh, 
And that's part of why that second half of Romans chapter 8 is written. Okay? We'll get back to that in just a moment. I came here the first time precisely because I had heard in the news that your pastor had a bike accident. It has been, I imagine, a very difficult five years for this congregation. And in the midst of that, we are sometimes tempted to think that God's measure, love for us is measured by the circumstances we experience. And part of what I wanted to remind you of is that his steadfast love has not gone away, but it is present bearing you up through the midst of these five years. Because that's not the only struggle that you have experienced. I mean, right now you're in the midst of a pastoral search. That is difficult. You don't know how long it's going to go on. You don't know what's going to happen at the end of it. And oftentimes in the middle of it, there is disappointment after disappointment. God is still keeping you in the midst of the affliction. What the affliction does, first of all, here we see in the psalm, is that it reveals our fears. David is afraid for his life. How many are my foes, he says. He doesn't just have one. It's not like there's one guy who doesn't like David. There's lots of people who don't like David. And it, merely, it isn't merely that they don't like David. It's not sort of an indifference or they're not returning his phone calls. But he says, with what violent hatred they hate me. They want to hurt David. They would like to kill David and put themselves out of their own misery by ending him. You see, David has enemies, wantonly treacherous people who seek to destroy him. Now, we don't know the occasion upon which he wrote this psalm. It could be Saul and his army chasing David. It could be Absalom and his army chasing David. It could be any of the various battles with the Philistines or any of the other peoples that David was at war with while he was the king because David had many enemies over the years. And so too you also may have many enemies. They may not wish to kill you, but they may wish to do you harm in some way. Who are your foes? Who is it that seeks ill for you? There may be many. It's interesting. When you get to Romans 8 and you're near the end of that chapter, I said I was going to get back there. Paul says, Who can separate us from the love of God who is in Christ Jesus? And you're expecting the answer of a person. And he begins to say, Can famines can persecutions, can any list circumstances. Okay, the grammar isn't really matching up there. And as Sinclair Ferguson notes, what most likely is going on, his theory is, is that it's the person behind those circumstances, Satan, God's great enemy, who seeks to do woe to his church, who is seeking to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, but he can't. He cannot remove 
us from our union with Jesus Christ by which we enjoy the love of God and all of the spiritual blessings that come with Jesus. But we should tremble, for we have a fierce enemy. But what David here is doing, in part, is one of the words that keeps popping up is waiting or hoping. There's a focus here on waiting for the Lord to answer his cries and to deliver him. And so David is not, in a sense, suffering alone. He's called out for help. Additionally, he has this fear of being put to shame or disappointment. That his hope in God will result in nothing good. That he will bank everything. It's sort of like maybe one of those people, crazy people, I think, at casinos. I'm going to lay it all on black. And disappointment comes to them, for they lose everything they entrusted to chance and circumstance. David doesn't want to be like that. His hope instead is that it is his enemies, because they rage not just against him, but also against God, that they would be the ones who come to shame or disappointment. This weekend, the Red Sox are playing the Yankees. And I remember a particular series back in 2004 when it seemed most certain that the Red Sox would be put to utter shame. The previous year, they had taken the Yankees to seven games, and it seemed like this might be the year that they would go to the World Series instead of the Yankees. And then here they are, down three games, to nothing. And as if that wasn't enough, one of their two best pitchers was hurt. The other best pitcher said that the Yankees were his daddy. And they had just gotten absolutely obliterated in game three. It seemed like they would be put to shame. As it turned out, it was not them. I don't want to say they're David. <laughs> but it was the other team that ultimately got put to shame for having them nailed to the floor, so to speak, the Red Sox won not just one game, but four games to take the series. Okay? That's right. Preach it. <laughs> we don't know in the middle how it's going to turn out. Sometimes it looks bad for us. But God is able to turn the tables. It was not easy because this affliction not only revealed his fears, but it also revealed his, and then also our, guilt. Not only uh, sometimes do our, does our guilt come from our own heads, our own memories, but often we have an enemy who likes to remind us of the things that we have done. He too likes to accuse us. David here lays out these words, My guilt, for it is great, it says, consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. He seems to see a connection between his afflictions and his guilt. And that if God will forgive his sins, then his affliction will end. Sometimes our afflictions are tied to our sins, but not every time. I remember a difficult number of years 
the church I had been pastoring at that time had closed, and there was a transition period for me, and I spent many a night awake on my bed. What if I had done this instead of that? What if I had made this choice? How I may have sinned in particular circumstances, mulling over regrets. And when we're in the midst of afflictions, what happens is we often cannot sleep and our mind goes to work. And that connection between affliction and guilt rears its ugly head in all of us. We can become overcome with our guilt. David seemed weighed down, worn down by his guilt. But note, what does he do? He confesses his fears and his guilt. Okay? In other words, when we hide our fear and our guilts from God, what happens is they control us and overwhelm us, but what David is doing is exactly what we ought to do, and that is making them known to God. I mean, he already knows them. But it's that part of entrusting ourselves to him, laying out those fears that we have, laying out the guilt that we experience, and bringing it into our relationship with him for him to deal with, instead of us to deal with alone. I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, that David's experiences, his historical, factual experiences, point us not just to David, but to Jesus. And in here, one of the ways in which they point us to Jesus was he was familiar with affliction, he was a man of sorrows. He had enemies. Back home in Arizona, we're in John's Gospel, and they're always there, lurking. And we just, before I left, hit the point where Jesus reveals that it is Judas, his own friend, who's about to betray him. Jesus understands. Jesus has walked that road, and Jesus is willing to walk that road with his people. He walks with them in that. Not only that, but as we saw from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he didn't die for his guilt, but for ours. He bore our sins. So afflictions reveal our guilt and fears, but they help us to see Jesus who bore them for us. Secondly, Sort of like, in light of that, we should trust God to pardon our sins in Christ. Okay? David didn't give up. His guilt and his fears would not have the final word on what would happen to him. And so he begins to plead with God. Remember your mercy. Remember your steadfast love. He's not just reminding God. I believe he's also reminding himself that he, with the knowledge of his guilt, needs to remember that God is merciful and that God is filled with steadfast love. He needs to go back to Exodus 34, which seems to be what he is reciting to God. 
where we see God revealing himself to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You see, God has already revealed himself to be merciful and full of steadfast love. But when we are in the midst of affliction, we are prone to doubt that. And we have the evil one who not only whispers to us about our sin, but also whispers to us to cast doubt upon the character of God. so that we see him as the righteous judge who will crush us instead of the marvelous Savior who will rescue us if we call out to him. This is precisely why Martin uh, Lloyd-Jones talks about having to talk to yourself. Okay, He says, so often you listen to yourself. You listen to your doubts. You listen to your fears. You listen to your anxieties. You need to speak the truth of the gospel to yourself regularly. And so this is exactly what David is doing. This is who I am, but this is who you are. Continue to be who you are and have mercy upon this sinner. In affliction, we doubt his love. We have to look to the cross for that is the ultimate proof of his love. That is how we know what love is, according to John in 1 John 4. The cross. God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. That is what love is. And so David continues, Remember not, now remember that, Okay, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. He's pleading with God to cast those out of his memory. He's not despairing in guilt, but he's seeking God in the midst of this. He's seeking the forgiveness of God. And we are able to seek that same forgiveness because God continues to be merciful, and he's merciful in Jesus. The Father will not remember our sins. Precisely because the Son has borne them. The Son has paid for them. And so he no longer brings them to mind in judgment against his children. This is a promise that is only for those who are in Christ by faith. But if we find ourselves there by his mercy, we are confident of his forgiveness. Now here's the contrast. It was, remember not the sins of my youth, but he says, remember me. Don't forget about me, but remember me according to your steadfast love. He wants to be seen in light of the steadfast love of God, which is revealed most fully in Jesus Christ. You could say that he wants to be seen in the righteousness of Christ because of union with Christ. 
I don't think it's pressing too hard to see that. And why would God remember him according to his steadfast love? Paul, uh, sorry, David says, for the sake of his goodness. And he says again, for your name's sake. In other words, because of your character, do this. And for your glory, do this. In other words, God is glorified by being one who forgives sin, who displays mercy and steadfast love to particular sinners. Psalm 130, verse 4, always strikes me in this context. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Or perhaps better would be revered. When we think of the fear of God in, a, in a, the sense of a, of a believer, it is one of reverence as one would, should have to a, have an earthly father. Recognizing the greater strength and power, but also recognizing the goodness and love. Okay? Both are present there. And it is because he forgives sin that he is to be feared or revered. Therefore, one of the purposes God has in bringing affliction to us is that we might grow in godly fear. Because we have sinned so greatly, we are to be humble. And so God's purpose in affliction is also to humble us. And so we see those two words, humility and fear, occurring repeatedly throughout this psalm because that is the character that God is wanting to produce in his people in the midst of affliction. Fearing him and humility before him. And so while afflictions reveal guilt, God pardons us to produce humble reverence within us. Thirdly, and I can't say everything about this song. I have to remember what my professor, Richard Pratt, told me. You can't say everything anytime you say anything. We are to trust God to deliver and guide through Christ. See, David here wants help with his fears. He doesn't turn to men, and he doesn't rely upon himself. He's not saying, as we are prone to in the face of our enemies, I'll go and get you one day. He's looking to God. He trusts in God to deliver him, not that he will deliver himself. He's looking to God to deliver, as we see in the very last verse, Israel, instead of Israel delivering itself. He is not striking back. We see this taught to us, not just there, but in places like Romans chapter 12. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if we look back to Jesus, we have even stronger encouragement, I think. 1 Peter chapter 3. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. Yes, sorry, in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him 
who judges justly. And so when Jesus was betrayed, when Jesus was um, falsely accused, when Jesus was being nailed to the cross, he didn't utter threats. Just you wait till I get to my kingdom. I'll get you then. He continued to entrust himself to the Father who would vindicate him. And essentially, that is what David is doing. He's entrusting himself to his God in the hope that God will vindicate him in due time. And when we are suffering affliction, we too ought to entrust ourselves, as Jesus did, to our faithful creator and redeemer, knowing that he will vindicate us. He will judge justly precisely because we know that Jesus triumphed over all his enemies and ours at the resurrection. The vindication of the Father came and we can trust him to vindicate us in due time, his way. But too often our flesh betrays us because we want it yesterday. We and I, you and I need to live in resurrection light. And the power of the Spirit who comes to us because Jesus has not only died upon the cross, but also been raised again on the third day and ascended into heaven where he sits at God's right hand and he pours out his Spirit so that we might partake of newness of life. And so it's not just up to our flesh, but the power of the Spirit will be encouraging us and enabling us to entrust ourselves to him, to rest in him. David doesn't stop there. He also needs to know how to live in a time of affliction. He needs wisdom. And so here all of these verbs, make me to know, teach me, lead me. And it's always not just what to do, but teach me, make sure I get this right here, his ways, okay? Teach me your ways, your paths, your truth. He longs to learn from God what he ought to do, how he ought to live, how he ought to respond to all of this in a godly fashion and not in a worldly fashion in accordance to the flesh. Because humble people, as David is becoming through this affliction, want to be led. They don't resist guidance. It's proud people who resist guidance. And we see that all the time. And it's until God humbles somebody that they suddenly say, okay, now show me. Show me how to live. And we, unfortunately, brothers and sisters, live in a time in which our culture is moving in an increasingly ungodly direction, shall we say. And it would be easy for us to give in to fear. But I think God has a better way for us. A way that's in, in line with his ways, with his truth, and I would say his righteousness, 
but also in line with his love. Because we're not a terrorist group. <laughs> we are a holy people, beloved of God. And we need to ask him to show us how to live in, a, in, a, in circumstances that are increasingly like Corinth instead of what we've been used to. That's when I envy those of you who are older than me. Because you will not have to see what I will. And what my children will. Unless God intervenes in a mighty way, which is possible. He may bring great revival. And I pray that he does. But part of what David is getting at, which would be consistent with what Paul gets at, is that we don't naturally know or obey his ways, paths, and truth. The flesh resists. The understanding is darkened. And so we need him to enlighten us. And that only happens, so to speak, as he first makes us humble and makes us fear him. Because it's the one who fears him that he brings into his confidence. We don't fear him naturally, and so he produces that through things like affliction. He does this precisely because he is good. Note that. This phrase. He instructs godly people in the way. No, that's not what it says. Sinners. He instructs sinners in the way. See the compassion? See the love? See the mercy? Just as even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, even though we're still sinners, he shows us his way. He teaches us. Calvin notes, we must observe this consequence that as God is good and upright, he stretches forth his hand to sinners to bring them back again into the way. The compassionate God that we have. The one who fears the Lord is the one that he will instruct in the way he should choose. If we fear him, reverence him, we will heed that instruction, recognizing both his goodness and his wisdom. We know what it's like. Most of us have had children. <laughs> and how frustrating it can be when you speak to a child out of your wisdom and out of your goodness and they don't listen. <laughs> I have four children. I am very familiar with this experience. Why won't they listen? Because they're proud? And because they don't have a godly fear of their parent? And that's how we often are with God. We think we can figure this out alone. We think we don't really need him as much as maybe we do. And we resist his clear, kind instruction.
a well. David knew God. And David entrusted himself into God's care in the midst of his afflictions. He confessed his guilt. He confessed his fear, confident of God's pardon and instruction and deliverance. What does this mean? This means that as your guilt rises, continue to confess your sin, confident in Christ's satisfaction for your sin, that it is sufficient to remove all, not just some, of your sin. As your fears arise, continue to call on Christ as your Redeemer and Defender. Continue to humble yourselves in godly fear, asking Christ to lead and guide so that you can not only survive affliction, but also glorify Him as one who is worthy of your trust and your worship. With that, let's pray. Father, this reminds us, or reminds me of the, one of the, the last recorded words of John Newton, that his memory is weak, but he remembers two things, that he is a great sinner and Christ is a greater Savior. So, Father, thank you for this drumbeat in, in this psalm. Even in the midst of our trials and woes, we can see you as merciful and loving. And we can turn to you because of that love and mercy. That you are always faithful and you bring these afflictions to us precisely so we will turn to you. So we will humbly receive that which you offer us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, do these good things in these people. Whether their afflictions are here within the body or at home or at work, may they grow in godly humility and fear. Growing in an awareness of the greatness of your forgiveness, the goodness of your instruction looking to you for wisdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.